In 2001, Irana chef Joxon Frillo struck up a conversation with an indigenous busker in Circular Quay. Four hours later, when the chat was over, the trajectory of his life would change forever. His parting words were, he said, no matter what you do, give back more than you take. That was the last thing he said to me. Hi, I'm Samantha Teague, and welcome to Set Menu, the Gourmet Traveller podcast. Today, a special episode dedicated to a special place our new restaurant of the year, Arana. Joxon Frillo's intimate Adelaide restaurant champions native ingredients, and his not-for-profit, the Arana Foundation, works to actively benefit Indigenous communities. We invited Norman Gillespie, the executive chair of the Arana Foundation, to sit down with Jock. It seemed to me that there was, there was this layer of... Australian food that wasn't evident in the Australian dining scene as good as it was mm. and so uh, I thought well the only way to find this is, is to go and speak to an Aboriginal person um, and in Sydney in 2001 that was much more difficult than one might imagine and you find it in a very unlikely spot but one that's highly public yeah and um, down Circular Quay um, and there was this guy called Jimmy who was busking I introduced myself asked him if I could sit down and talk to him about showing ingredients and, and, and what he ate growing up and who cooked and, and that sort of stuff. And he said, yeah, of course, sit down. And over the next four hours, I had a conversation that just changed, uh, that changed the way I thought about, about food and culture and, and people within Australia. Um, it changed me as a person. It certainly changed the way I cooked and from that point on. I heard some things. You know, he, was, he was talking about food in a way that was there was a spiritual connection between this culture mm. from this man and, and the earth and the land. Um, from where I was standing as a white guy, um, there was this sort of um, impoverished situation with Australian Aboriginals. Um, and, and here was a, a whole category of, uh, of a subject matter being food that, that maybe could could sort of change people's perception, I guess, of, of Aboriginal people, their culture. You know, it seemed to me there was a lot of misunderstandings after I had this conversation. Um, you know, one of the things that and Jimmy said to me is parting words where he said, no matter what you do, give back more than you take. That was the last thing he said to me. And talking to Jimmy about, you know, even, even stuff like, you know, um, to, be, to be told that, that that culture didn't have uh, any any culture around food and ingredients, right? But then to hear from Jimmy that you know the stingrays, for example, um, cooking the stingrays, um, and and two different ways they would either boil it in the seawater first, or they would put it on the fire with eucalypt leaves over the top and smoke it. And once it was, um, they w- they would only take it at a certain time of year when the lily blossoms on the beaches. When that lily blossoms, they knew uh, the stingray would be fat. And so I was sitting there thinking, stingrays fat, and I'm trying to sort of think to myself, okay, you know, stingrays don't really get that fat. I'm not sure what he's talking about. Um, And then as the story went on, you know, he's talking about, you know, the belly of the stingray and taking the coals to a certain temperature, peeling back the wings so as the belly would be sort of really taut, and then kissing it off the coals so as the belly would just burst like burst open and then remove the fat. And at that point I thought, okay, it's the, it's the liver, right? Set the liver aside, cook the fish. 
until it's perfectly cooked. Take that off, strip all the meat off of it, then get the liver, put it onto the coals 30 seconds each side, and then mash that liver through the fish. Now, that's not, that's not something that somebody who's just eating because they're hungry does. No. And he's talking about how it makes it more delicious and how the, the, the fat's prized and it's the, you know, they, they take it that time of year because it's the, it's the good eating, it's, the, it's when it's perfect. Um, he's talking about the flavor that the eucalypt gives when it smokes and he preferred that as opposed to his father who, who loved it boiled in the seawater. So, you know, the, that, during that conversation, I could have been having uh, a conversation with a chef about that kind of thing, right? Like it could have been me talking to Neil Perry about preserving a, a you know a, mm. a foie gras from a fish and separating it and mixing it afterwards because it's more delicious. Um, um, so it went it went against everything that I had I had learned. So, but that um, led you then to start going out back yourself. Yeah, and you know we know that it's very difficult to come from the outside and actually gain the trust of of elders in these remote communities. But you managed to do that over really quite a long time, 15 years. Yeah, uh, and, and it wasn't without its disasters, honestly. I mean, yeah. I've made more mistakes than, than, than the average white guy, I'm sure. Um, and certainly uh, in, my, in the early years, I was fairly um, culturally insensitive. <laughs> um, I didn't know any protocols of, of the do's and don'ts and, or anything, and I really sort of um, learned on the job, as it were, and uh, for me it was, the first community I went into was APY lands and it was on the seventh visit before I, they actually let me in um, and they did just kind of interview you almost you know and they want to know your uh, why not, not just sort of it's not just why you're there they mm. want to know about you as a person who and, you are and, yeah who you are but also what kind of person you are almost that, that it's kind of like an interview you know but eventually being allowed in um, I was only there for <coughs> Nine days, um, and then I was thrown out by the police because I didn't have a I didn't have, I didn't have, a, right per, permit. I didn't have a permit to be in AP Wildlands, and and that again for me was sort of one of those moments where it was like, hang on a second, you know, this is their land, and I've been invited into their land by them, but I'm being thrown out by, you know, by the police. Like it didn't make any sense to me, and it was you know it was another long line of things that didn't make sense to me, and and. Certainly, the more I, uh, the more communities I visited, the more elders and and uh, and people I spoke to, and the more sort of almost third world conditions I seen uh, these people in, um, the more I wanted to make a change or somehow do something to to um, uh, utilize, support, protect, um, and and celebrate this food culture and the connection to the land. Um, if I could do that while making a change, it seemed to seemed to me I just had to figure out what that would be. I mean, for me, <coughs> coming into this this sort of late in 2016, and then starting to read and listen to you, suddenly I discovered, but here was a culture that was immensely sophisticated in their food culture and land management. Why don't we know about this? Why don't we read about this? Why isn't this widely celebrated? And this is something that kind of shocked me. Mm. And here's someone I've lived here for 20 years, and I did not realize the sophistication of that food culture. No, and I, and I don't think many people do, to be honest. I mean, I certainly didn't. And, and that was, like I said, that four-hour conversation in the beginning, you know, 
I'd been told previously that you know that there was nothing for me to to investigate uh, with mm. regards to indigenous culture and you know waste my time. Why don't you just open a restaurant and do three Michelin star food and you know be done with it? And and when people actually knew or or, or at least a little bit understand how sophisticated the whole thing is, um, I think I, I think they just look at it completely differently. You know. So the proof of that, of course, is in your own cooking. Mm. Because Orana is based on the very fact of, I think you've collected some 700 different species and ingredients and really used your kitchen in, in a way as a mini research lab to really find out to take what you know of the practices, but adapt them into uh, contemporary cuisine. So in a way, you're now presenting this to people to say, here is the test of this food. And it's a bit of a revelation. We are, but we have to develop it. I guess one of the one of the roadblocks that we're always going to have is is are you stealing indigenous intellectual property and utilizing it for your own use in the restaurant? No, we're not. We created the restaurant first of all in order to get the foundation up and running because we realised that w- without sort of putting these ingredients uh, with with some cultural understanding in perspective to today's gastronomy, there was no way that anybody was going to back what we were trying to achieve in the foundation, right? Mm. So while we go, while I go out into a community and sort of, you know, like literally just zip it, spend a couple of weeks and and learning from from old women, whether it be foraging or cooking, etc. I then take that 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 knowledge back and the cultural relevance back into the kitchen and and work it through. And you know, I, in the community, I might see them cooking, you know, uh, something in in ashes on the side of the fire and pouring seawater onto it. Obviously, we can't do that in a restaurant. We have to come back, refine it in order to, to, to make it something that is approachable because the mantra in a restaurant certainly has always been, you know, make that first step for people as approachable as possible uh, rather than give them a live witchetty grub and say, here, chew on this and suck this root at the same time. It's just not... There was already a reasonable amount of facial neuralgia around native ingredients anyway, Um so we wanted to make it as delicious and, and as approachable as possible. Um, so we kind of get the knowledge and then we make sure that we understand it and we understand the cultural relevance of it. And then we refine it so as it's presentable in today's gastronomy. And then we tell that story um, through the food and at the table to the customers if they want to hear it. And, and not everybody wants to hear that story. You know, some people just want to come in and have a fancy meal or a nice meal. Um, or in the bistro, they want to come in and just you know have two courses, and they're not interested, um, and that's also okay. Um, I think the conversation for us is around these are Australian ingredients, and we've always sort of stuck by that. This isn't, you know, we keep continually, or well, not so much now, but in the beginning, we're pigeonholed as you know your native Australian or your contemporary Australian. No, they, these are Australian ingredients. End of story. That's it. You know, they might not be as well known as you know, uh, kangaroo or whatever, but the, you know, they're Australian ingredients. But clearly that's what we want to change. We, we want to make these more accessible Absolutely. and more known. So you've always said to me, Orana actually is a step. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a showcase, but it's the foundation that, that I'm really passionate about. Mm. I really do want to give back and make a difference. So let's go to 2016. You'd, you'd written so many times to government agencies and others to say, this is what I want to do. This is the foundation, please help. And nothing really happened. Um, so, uh, let me tell the story that yep. um, 
I, I, I knew this amazing, extraordinary American philanthropist called um, Dina Kay. She's the daughter of the, the Hollywood legend Danny Kay. And she loves passionate people, and she loves to support passionate people. I knew her from my work in UNICEF, but she came across to Australia, spent a couple of months, and being widely read in the, in the gourmet magazines, she made a beeline for Arana. Yes, she, and was it? She, she read the Wall, Street, the Wall Street Journal. Is that what she, yeah, she, she read first read about Journal. you? Yeah. So anyway, she makes the trip down to Arana. As coincidence would have it, you were in Blackwood that <laughs> night. She saw you, she walks across, introduces herself, and of course jocks off. So he tells her the whole story about the foundation and his vision, and she says, look, I really want to help. But I think you need some help to structure it. So our first point of help was to say, meet my friend Norman. And that's really how we met. We met in Sydney the next couple of days. He gave me the spiel. I thought, this guy's got great energy. He's sort of want to boil the ocean, change the world. It's not going to happen that way. Why don't we get together and see if we can hammer out what this foundation might do? So we did. We locked ourselves in a room in Adelaide in a, in a little boardroom with a whiteboard. In fact, you used the window as well to write on, I remember. There was a lot of writing. And there was a lot of writing, a lot of eating <laughs> in between. And we hammered out and we really got down to what is the essence of the foundation? What do you want to achieve? What do you want to do? And when the white smoke came out of the chimney, we came out with a plan. And that was really the start of, of putting the actual physical foundation together. And look, we haven't looked back since then. There have been challenges, but there's something about the timing of all of this. There seems to be a trend now of people really interested and in wanting to get involved in native food and understanding this. So do you want to take it from there as to what we, we did in the early stages? We well, went back uh, to government? Well, what, I mean, what about for you, though? I mean, you, you're coming from, coming from, you know, uh, Optus, Opera House, UNICEF. Like, mm. you know, wh what did you think? I mean, I, I must have been a rambling idiot when I met you because essentially <laughs> Dina, Dina said to me, I want to help you. Tell me what I can do. And I said, I don't know anything about not-for-profits. So and really, I need help setting it up. And, it was, and she said, well, I know this great guy, Norman. And I was like, OK. You're the classic entrepreneur. You really are passionate, know what you want to do, but you like to skip a lot of things to just get to the end point. I, just, I stand at the shoulder of these sorts of people and say, look, let me help structure it. Let's get a clear strategy. Let's get priorities. And before we knew it, we came together with three things we really wanted to do. And it sort of started to make sense. The first thing we wanted to do was to preserve and to um, collect everything that was known about all the Australian ingredients, from anthropologists, botanists, scientists. Second thing we want to do is bring science into it. Because what we don't know about is the analysis of these ingredients. Mm. What's the nutritional quality? What, is the, um, what are the, the vitamins and the benefits and all of those things? To, to really bring credibility to what these, these amazing uh, ingredients are. And then the third thing said, well, if we do do that, and we do identify some amazing ingredients, I think what you really want to do is to give back by establishing enterprises in remote communities who can grow, harvest, and supply this to scale. Now, we know there's many challenges that, but clearly we came out with those three main aims. Now that we'd rattled it down to those three things, I'd spent so much time getting Irana up and running in order to showcase this that I'd forgotten the perspective of the volume of how big this <laughs> the challenges were of of do of doing the foundation mm. and you know it's great in a kitchen we can uh, or a community I can see how, how something be, can be completely inedible and then edible right and then bring it back to the kitchen do it 
from a science level, no idea how it got there. And then mm. when I was having conversations with universities, you know, it costs like $3,000 to get something to analyzed, yeah. you know, for no toxicity. Ingredient. I mean, it's nuts. And obviously from the restaurant perspective, we couldn't go on like that. Um, but then, so we had this, uh, the, there was a, I don't even know what it was. It was a, it was a, a food industry get together, lunch. Um, and they wheeled out this new guy from Adelaide University called Andy Lowe, Professor Andy Lowe from the UK. And um, he was quite quirky. And I thought, to my, I was sitting next to him and I thought to myself, I'm just going to hit this guy up and see what he thinks. Like a bit of a crazy off the record conversation. And so I grabbed him after lunch and I said, hey, we're doing this thing that you might be interested in. And I'd love to talk to you about it and maybe we can collaborate. Um, and immediately he was like, yeah, let's talk. And it took it took a, a month or so afterwards, mm. I think, to actually get through the layers of university uh, in order to get a meeting with him. But um, once we sat down and talked, it was all over. He was so welcoming of of what we were trying to do, but also, um, you know, I think it was just like a, a, a. I think it was something that he was looking for. So, Jock, given that we've got these amazing facilities now in, in the university, give, give me an example of, of, of an ingredient that you have identified and taken it from literally the land to the plate. One of the main projects of the, of the foundation right now is, is Geraldton Wax. And Geraldton Wax is probably one of the more special ones to me because it was an ingredient that Jimmy spoke about. He said, uh, he called it a lime tree. Um, uh, he gave me the... He said the name in his language. Obviously, I had no idea what he was talking about. And I and he said lime tree, and I drew a kaffir lime leaf. You know, like the double leaves of a kaffir lime. And he laughed at me uh, and and drew what looked like a pine tree. And so I figured it was pine um, that he was talking about. And he was talking uh, about stuffing it inside Barramundi, and then cooking. You know, so cat. Uh, he was from Western Australia. Fishing on the Fitzroy River, catching a barramundi, um, cooking the barramundi, using making a fire with with uh, the mangrove wood, um, and then uh, stuffing the inside of the belly with uh, this lime tree, um, which I figured was pine, um, and then cooking it in a fire at a certain temperature over uh, over the coals that were a certain temperature, so as the scales didn't burn uh, and it kept all the moisture and the juice inside the fish while it was cooking, leaving the scales on. Um, and then you'd have this beautifully fragrant, limey, you know, delicious flesh, as he said, which, you know, my mouth is watering even now, just remembering it. Again, I was on the Fitzroy with a different mob camping, right? So the guys are getting together dinner. Um, and Bruno brings over uh, the, the barramundi, sits it on, and I'm sitting a few metres back. I can smell this, like, lemongrass, kaffir lime kind of smell, and I'm like... That's. I wonder if that's it. And I ask him. I said, well, "What is that?" And he again, he's like, "No, I have no idea what he was talking about." And I, and he said, "I'll show you in the morning. I'll show you in the morning." In the morning, he shows me a Geraldton wax plant. I'd never seen a Geraldton wax plant in my life. He gave me, and it kind of looks like a really shabby pine. Like really, if you if you take the the branches off, or a really shit rosemary, <laughs> like not as full bodied, right? And I tried one of the needles, and it was kaffir lime, lemongrass flavor, aroma, amazing. So we use that now. Um, and what I've learned about Geraldton wax is, uh, over the years, is that in Australian culture, uh, 
they have, there is now 430 something varieties of Geraldton wax for landscaping and cut flower industries. One of the biggest export uh, products in the cut flower industry overseas. It's now grown in, I don't know how many countries, ridiculous, but we've never eaten it. Never put it in your mouth. Never put it in your mouth. So now we use it in the restaurant um, in, a, in a number of different ways. Predominantly, we make uh, we make a, a paste with it. So it discolors quite easily. So um, what we do is put liquid nitrogen. It's, we are totally not a liquid nitrogen Heston Blumenthal <laughs> kitchen. Um, it's the only thing we use li- liquid nitrogen for. But what we do is we're able to freeze it very, very quickly. And then we uh, break it down with a pestle and mortar into a paste um, with a little bit of oil and some salt, nothing else. What it does is it, it just gives this amazing citrus flavor. So we might brush fish with it, um, or, or a marin, for example, was on the menu for a while, mm. where we cook a marin to water, Fantastic. just cooked, brushed with this gelatin wax paste, um, uh, and put in a plate with, um, with a little bit of sauce that's made with watercress, and again, a little bit of the paste. It's a flavor that's stunning, and it's a flavor that, to me, symbolizes you know, a lot of you know, that sort of Australian taste um, you know, and it, but yet it's very familiar to mm. to our diners who are used to sort of Asian flavors. You know, it's not a huge gap. It's one of those ingredients that's a really comfortable first step. And also for our diners, when we say, "Oh, you know, this is Geraldton wax," nine times out of ten, someone will go, "My mum grows that in the garden," mm. and they go, "Yeah, have you ever eaten it?" And they go, "No, I never even thought about it." So it's that moment of realization for a lot of our diners that say, "Yes, that's." That's awesome, and mm. it's a comfortable mm. first step. You know mm. what I mean? Jock, amazing. Uh, Rana has just been named the best restaurant in Australia. How is that going to help us in the foundation to get our aims, um, to fulfil those aims and see success in this? Look, it's, it's, it's an incredible accolade for the restaurant. Um, um, unbelievable, actually. But I, I think it, it really gives us... Um, uh, a great deal of legitimacy, I guess, around what we're doing, and and and, and the fact that it's that it's um, it can possibly reach more people than just you know the 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 thirty forty diners that we cook for every night. Um, and I know that you know ultimately, you know, success for us looks like multiple projects in multiple communities around the country. Um, where we are mentoring um, indigenous, um, not just elders, but indigenous youth, uh, mentoring them into businesses, um, which are are food-based, but are providing a scalable quantity of of product, um, where we're still able to preserve that sort of cultural component of it um, and recognize it and celebrate it. And, you know, an award like this just, you know, of course, that's going to help us do that so much quicker, I guess, than than it would be if we were, you know, completely unknown. To find out more about Jock and the rest of our winners, check out our September issue, On Stands Now. Make sure you subscribe so you get an alert when the new episode drops and write us a review so it's easy for other people to find us. Thanks for listening.